Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the fifth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Prestige. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And a lot of people were surprised that no, after Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan's next film was not Batman Begins 2 or whatever it was going to be called. It was a period piece around the turn of the century, not the previous century, but the century before, about two warring magicians. Uh, Okay? Yeah, it's an interesting um, idea, I guess, because... Yeah, he, especially coming off of the heels of Batman, which is, I guess, what most would consider to be somewhat of an action movie. He's now going back to drama again, which in reality, that's kind of where most of his film genres have have kind of lied, is very much in the drama genre. Right. And it seems like period pieces for the most part, especially fairly old ones because this takes place in the late 1800s period pieces outside of well political or historical ones are not as common and especially as the decade was progressing this was becoming far less common and that's why i would say this story probably would fit into like a movie made in the 1960s because those movies were all about period pieces. I'm thinking Dr. Zhivago, yep. Lawrence of Arabia, um, Need I Go On, but those are all the rage back then. It's interesting because this is moving, he moved this to October 20th, 2006. Right. So not in uh, the summer blockbuster month where Batman Begins was. The October month is usually the calm before the storm. And the storm is the December box office where all the Oscar heavy hitters come out. October, usually August to October is is just like dry as a desert. Yep, it is. Now, The Prestige is based off of a book. Um, Mm -hmm. It's another adaptation of a book. I guess technically Memento was one as well. but it's a book written by a man named Christopher Priest. Uh, and the idea to make this adaptation has actually been around since 2001. Uh, they, Christopher Nolan ended up not doing it because by the time it was given to him, uh, he was already working on insomnia. And then the next time the opportunity came around, he was just about to dive into Batman Begins. And so around that time, when the second when it came around the second time, he asked his brother, Jonathan Nolan, to write up a script uh, for The Prestige. And so he wrote it up. And uh, there were only a couple of differences from the book that Christopher Priest wrote. One of them was there was a religious subplot that was taken out. And then there's a another plot point with one of the main characters going to the gallows that was kind of adjusted. But Priest loved it. He absolutely thought that the script that was written was amazing. And so with that, after Batman Begins was done, 
Chris Van went right into production for The Prestige. And that is crazy because you're coming off of such a hot property, Batman Begins. Oh, yeah. it, it was blowing up. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing. And then you would think, okay, now I got to put all my efforts into making the next one. He's like, no, I'll turn around and put out a movie in about a year. Yep. And then we'll jump into The Dark Knight. That's a lot to pack onto your plate right there. Now, I did actually uh, read the book. Oh, did you? I technically listened to the audiobook. Oh, yeah. Because uh, if you're a Prime member, Audible, some Audible books are free, actually. So I thought, huh, okay, I, I'm curious. I've seen this movie before, so I'll listen to the book. And it's not a terribly long book at all. It did come out in 1995, which just happened to be the year I was born. I had no idea this was based off a book. I think I maybe had heard it through the grapevine that it was, but... I wasn't, I didn't exactly know it for a fact until, of course, this review. Sure. And so my thoughts on the book while I was listening to it, I kind of found large portions of the book to be boring. Okay. Because we see in the movie that each character is reading the diary of the other character. Right. Well, those aren't really dramatized within the novel. They're just like straight readings of the diary for large portions of it. Interesting. Which really kind of takes out a lot of intrigue and makes it hard to track with because there's so many dates to keep up with. And thankfully, they were fairly limiting with the dates in this, not to bog us down. Right. I would say the the most major change to it is the book takes place about 100 years after the movie takes place. Okay. So this takes place around 1900 and the book is taking place about 2000. And it's the descendants of these two characters that have come back together and they're rediscovering um, the past, which we mo mostly see play out here in the movie. But thankfully, they trimmed a lot of fat, I would say, because novels are always more are longer than movies. Right. There's so much that they trimmed down, thankfully, to keep this um, more intriguing because there's like we learn the entire backstory of Borden from his childhood onward in the book. Um, and but more or less, it's fairly similar. Um, I would just say it's it's somewhat dry, so I can't really recommend the book. Fair enough. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember what my earliest Christopher Nolan movie was. I want to say it was this one. Oh, really? I remember my uncle showed it to me, like a lot of movies from around this time. But from what I remember, this might be the earliest Christopher Nolan movie that I had seen at the time that I first watched it. Yeah. Now, do you remember, did you watch it close to when it came out? Because, uh, I mean, how old? You would have been like 10? Right? Yeah. Yeah, around 10. And 10. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I would have been 10. Because it came out in 2006. Mm -hmm. No, it wouldn't have been around then. It would have been a few years after that. I think I would have probably would have been middle school. I want to say. I know it was definitely over thirteen when I watched it. Yeah, this was not my first encounter with Nolan. Um, I'm pretty sure Batman Begins was, and then it was The Dark Knight, and then just a couple years after that, it probably was The Prestige was the next Nolan film I saw. Gotcha. And then The Dark Knight Rises, and then clearly you and I are going back and watching the rest of them. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I remember seeing Batman Begins 
It was definitely after this. I want to say this is probably the earliest record of Nolan that I remember seeing when I was a kid. Hmm. That's interesting. And I mean, it's not a bad introduction to Nolan because this is, he's using his nonlinear storytelling once again, and he is using some of his, uh, which will truly become his staple actors. Uh, He's using Christian Bale and Michael Caine again. Yep. Yep, and from pretty much here on out, since uh, I guess it would have been Batman Begins, he Michael Caine will be in in every single Christopher Nolan movie until uh, I guess I don't know. I think it's until um, was it Dunkirk? Dunkirk, yeah. I don't want to say I mean, he might have a very small role, but he's always in there in some fashion. Either it's a voiceover or whatever, he's always in there in some way. Mm. So yeah, since uh, Batman Begins and onward, Michael Caine will continue to be a returning actor for Christopher Nolan's movies. Now, this year, 2006, was a pretty interesting year for film, I would say. Um, some very big names released their movies that year. Martin Scorsese's The Departed ah, won yes. Best Picture. Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth stole two Oscars from this film, which we'll talk <laughs> about. I'll just say it now. Um, this film was up for cinematography and art direction, and Pan's Labyrinth got both of those. Ah, I have seen both. I have seen Pan's Labyrinth. It has been a while. I watched it for a Spanish class when I was in college. I have seen it as well. Um, also, Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men came out. That's right. Yeah, this year. I forgot. I, forgot this, I thought that came out earlier. Wow. This was the first year that um, Daniel Craig appeared as James Bond in Casino Royale. That's right. A very beloved Bond film. Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Oh, yeah. Came out. Um, Cars came out, Pirates of the Caribbean 2, Night at the Museum, X-Men 3, The Last Stand, Mission Impossible 3, uh, Borat, which I've never seen, but it's mm-hmm. still something that's talked about <laughs> even yes. today. Yep. And also The Da Vinci Code, which caused a huge controversy. That's right, yeah. Uh, Monster House was a lot of fun. And the third Fast and Furious film came out, Tokyo Drift. David Lynch's Inland Empire came out and Superman returned to the big screen with Superman Returns. Ah, yeah. I've seen most of those, I guess. Uh, Are these, yeah, I think Superman Returns, I've only seen most of, I think probably the ending half an hour as it usually is around this time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I think I've seen most everything on that list except for Borat. I don't think I've seen Borat. But yeah, I mean, I think it was around... Few years after this year is when I really started getting into movies and was seeing a lot more of these. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water came out this year as well. That's right. We reviewed that a few weeks back. <laughs> Classic. Yes. Well, as you mentioned, The Departed was very big uh, when it came out in 2006. It also was kind of running up against the prestige in the box office as well. Oh. So... Before we get into its placement, uh, the budget for The Prestige was $40 million, which is a pretty respectable budget for what we have. Opening weekend, though, $14.8 million. That's a, I would say that's a weak opening. That's a step yeah. back for Christopher Nolan, considering his last film almost got $50 million opening weekend. But it exactly. was Batman, granted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Batman makes sense because it's Batman. So this is kind of a surprise being as low as almost 15 million opening weekend. So domestically overall, it made 53.1 million, which is just barely over its budget. 
uh, with the foreign markets coming in at 51.3 million with a worldwide total of 104.4 million. So technically it did double its budget, um, but I don't know. May, it, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the studios considered this a flop. Yeah, I mean, for a budget of $40 million, which the movie, let's be honest, the movie didn't need any more than that. Oh, yeah. And so I'm thankful that the studio didn't give it more than that because then it would absolutely be a flop. Um, it's just weird because usually directors graduate into bigger and bigger budgets. And yeah. that has been the case with Nolan because Batman Begins had a $150 million budget. Right. To go from that to a $40 million budget. And okay, let's also be honest too. This was in almost 2000, almost 2000 less theaters. Right, exactly. And it about was, 1,500 theaters, I should say. Yeah, so all the way around, it was very much not uh, not nearly as popular as Batman, which, again, is not too big of a surprise, but given that it's the same director, I am a little bit shocked by its earnings coming back because I would, I would, you would, one would assume that after, you know, Batman Begins, which was a huge success, that people would want to see uh, what the director has, ne- what he's going to do next. And I think everybody was hoping that was going to be the next Batman movie. Right. And I was, I probably wasn't as tapped into cinema news at the time to really know what was going on. Right. All I knew is that where in the heck is uh, Batman 2 at? Because that, that would take three years. So I think a lot of people weren't very interested probably in seeing a period piece about two rival magicians is my guess. Now let's go into the theater placement. Uh, It opened at number one. Um, Which is not, it's just like kind of surprising with only $14 million, but hey, it's October. So what's the the competition going to be? Exactly. The only competition this week would have been The Departed, which had already been out for three weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it came in at number, The Departed came in at number two for week one week two however it came in at number three saw three was also released this week so it was saw three number one the departed number two and then number three mm. uh was the prestige for number four would have been flags for our fathers and number five being open season which i think has been in there for five weeks at that point then gotcha. week number three uh it dropped to number six and this is the week that borat santa claus three the escape clause and flushed away all released this week uh, with Saw f- 3 being at number 4 and The Departed at number 5. Hmm. Uh, so Hugh Jackman was competing with himself because he is the lead voice star in Flushed Away. Exactly. And I <laughs> I do remember actually seeing Flushed Away in the theaters. Really? Uh, yes. I oh. One of the very few films I got to see in theaters. Flushed Away. And then actually week one had uh, the opening weekend for a movie called Flicka which I was also in the theater for because mm-hmm. our my elementary school class or middle school class or whatever had rented out the theater to see that. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. That's cool. So I was actually in the theater at the time that this was released. I didn't realize that. Nice. I don't remember seeing Flicka in the theaters, but I have it on DVD. So <laughs> I've I seen don't remember. it a few times. I, I remember nothing about it. I was 10 when I watched it. And I remember being a great treat to see it in the theater because I never really went to theaters back in that day. Sure. So, yeah. I, I never got to see Flushed Away yet. That's one that's always eluded me. I've always wanted ah. to see it. I've just never got around to it. Ah, yeah. So let's get into scores. Uh, IMDb at an 8.5. 
being number 46 on the top 250, a very respectable score. Oh, yes. An 8.5, and it's within the top 50 considered greatest films of all time. Oh, yeah. Audiences. I think audience appreciation has, the appreciation has grown, is what I should say. Absolutely. And well, the further down we go into these scores, I would say that audiences are very, very positive towards this movie. Yeah. And it's actually, the score has gone down. Well, it's, it's placement has gone down or up depending on how you view it by one. Because when I made this, when I made my chart here, I had it at uh, 47 in the top 250, but I just changed it to 46. So it's I wonder, going, it's lowering. Yeah. I wonder if that would been, would it be because of the Avengers movies? Probably the end game was the one who pushed it down, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. So Metascore at a 66, still in the green. Um, critics... Uh, as we'll see here in a second, aren't as thrilled with it as audiences are. Rotten Tomatoes with a critic score of 75, audience score of 92. So clearly critics and audiences, while they both seem to be very positive toward it, critics aren't as, I guess, thrilled as audiences are. Sima score with a B and Letterboxd at a 4.1. So again, high, high audience scores pretty good but not as high critic scores yeah the critic scores are probably the most telling because uh especially like a 66 meta score is still in the green yeah but that's dangerously close to being mixed right mixed reactions and a 75 percent is still it was still considered certified fresh on rotten tomatoes yeah it is but it's coming down from an 84 percent on batman begins Right. Actually, I think 75% is right at the cutoff of being certified fresh. I think 75 is when you are or are not certified. Yes, I believe so. And it is telling that audiences gave Batman Begins an A and they gave The Prestige a B, which yeah. is a pretty major drop in score for audiences. So I think at the time, critics were like, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, there's we can't really find too many things to nitpick about it. Right. Uh, but I would say... Audiences at the time were like, it's okay. Like not very many people saw it, especially at the box office. Right. I just think uh, its image and placement in cinema has greatly grown because that oh, you know yeah. that 8.5 wasn't there overnight when this movie came out. Now, audiences knew who Christian Bale was coming off of Batman Begins. I think most audiences probably would have known Hugh Jackman from playing Wolverine as X-Men. Oh, yeah. I, I would not be surprised if, especially around this time, because it, this is now, 2006 would have been the ending of that first trilogy of X-Men mm-hmm. movies with X-Men The Last Stand. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure people knew Hugh Jackman mostly as the Wolverine at this time. Um, also, I noticed that Hugh Jackman came out in six movies in 2006. Did he really? Wow. Which for for this day and age is a ton. A ton. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, That's we, ridiculous. Talk, we talked about like, I think Faye Ray in King Kong in 33 came out in like 12 movies or yeah. something. Yeah, like something ridiculous. But now, I mean, most actors will come out in two, maybe three at the most per yep. year. That's And that's pushing it. Yep. Two or three. I know The Rock came out with, usually comes out with one or two a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this last year, let's see, it would have been Scarlett Johansson was in two movies. So yeah, if you have more than one, it's not like more than three usually. And it makes sense because after 
2004's Van Helsing, Hugh Jackman disappeared for all of 2005 because he yep. was working on all of these movies. Yep. Because he did come out in X-Men 3. He came out in Scoop, which I had not heard of, from at least from my recollection. Either it's a Woody Allen movie, and uh, Jackman stars opposite Scarlett Johansson. And also, he was in Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. Oh, that's right. I forgot he was in that. I haven't seen it. I have seen it. I don't remember too much about it. I remember being very weird, mm. which is pretty typical for an Aronofsky movie as well. And he was in George Miller. Yes, that George Miller who directed Mad Max Fury Road, the entire film. He was a voice in Happy Feet. That's right. I forgot that release this year, too. Yeah, and then, of course, as Alan mentioned, Flushed Away. Right. So it's kind of funny because we have three, well, now we can say three big-time superheroes all coming together in this movie, Batman, Wolverine, and Black Widow. Yeah, exactly. So it's in just, some ways, this is an Avengers all in of itself, I guess you could say. Yeah, and as Alan mentioned earlier about the worldwide total, I did want to mention real quick before we moved on too far. This is the third lowest uh, grossing of his films uh, worldwide, right? And this grossed just a bit above Memento and following. So that should tell you something. This film was very low grossing worldwide. And as we've noted, it will only go up from here, both in his Batman releases and in his, uh, I, I guess you can call them independent releases, or I guess a better way of putting it would be his original releases. And of course, Nolan has, he has like a solid, he has like a crew now. He, yep. These are his production people he's only going to work with. Wally Feister and Nathan Cowley, who did production on this film. Right. And David Julian is back from working with him on all of his previous films, except Batman Begins... That will just be Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. But yeah, David Julian's back also doing the score. Yeah, I noticed that too. Well, Alan, okay, let's say it's 2006. You are old enough to be interested in this type of period piece film. Let's say you're not 10 years old. Yeah. Okay, let's say you watch the trailer. Will this trailer get you into theaters? Maybe. It's, it does, it is very 2006. Um, but it does kind of, I guess, intrigue me with the story of, you know, these two guys who are big magicians uh, were friends and then they have a feud. Uh, that's really all that the trailer shows or tells us. And that idea seems kind of kind of interesting to me. What exactly the story is, is kind of hard to say. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, again, it is very 2006, um, but... I suppose it does intrigue me a bit to to see a story like that revolving around magic as well. For me, I thought the trailer was okay. It had some of that, like Alan said, that mid-2000 elements, kind of some hokey-sounding music, the transition, like, title cards. Yeah. Uh, some <laughs> some pretty, like, quick Zoom editing within there. Um, it looks kind of, to me, like a mad scientist frankenstein-esque movie yeah yeah it does i did feel like they're trying to put in a little bit of these horror elements like i know what you are and lots of shocking faces um i don't think it really accurately represents the movie so if i if i saw this trailer i don't think this trailer does a very good job of giving me a feel of what this movie's going to be like so i probably wouldn't have saw it 
uh, if I would have been old enough in 06. Yeah, I get, I definitely agree with you on that one, where on the point at least that it that doesn't really represent the movie very well. It definitely tries to make it out to be more of a thriller than a drama. <laughs> so in some ways it still was very intriguing, but had I seen it and then go back and watch it again like I did now in 2006, um, yeah, you're right. The trailer is not very not a very good representation of the movie as a whole. It is interesting, though, because like I said, a few years later, I stumbled upon this film and simultaneously The Illusionist, which just That's happened right. to come out this year as well. Yeah, they both came out around the same time. And I know that there was people like, what is this about? Some kind of, you know, controversy. No, it was, uh, what's the word? Uh, conspiracy that these movies came out around the same time. It is odd that both films set in the late 1800s about magicians. It's it's a, it's a it's a shock, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny because they both competed at the Academy Awards for cinematography. That's right. They did. And I did see both of these movies around the same time. I have very fond memories because I believe it was this or Rear Window that was the very first movie I, I watched in my theater room. Oh, really? Yes, and the theater room was nowhere near complete because the floor was concrete. We didn't have sheetrock up, so it was just metal studs in the wall. And we moved two couches in there, and we borrowed a um, pull-down projection screen from the church. Beautiful. And we just used zip ties to strap it up into the uh, the the metal studs. And we, I believe we also borrowed a projector as well. So we just sat down there in our concrete room and what we were slowly building, you know, piece by piece into our, what would become uh, the theater room that I have. And yeah, I remember fond memories of sitting there watching this movie unfold. Yeah. Now I do, if I remember right, I also, I also saw The Illusionist around the same time I watched this one as well. Uh my uncle being a, also a pretty, a pretty big movie guy. I'm pretty sure he showed this to us not long after we watched The Prestige as well. Yeah, they are still very different, but I would yeah. say they're pretty good companion films to watch oh, around yeah. the same time. Yeah, definitely. Well, listeners, if you have not seen The Prestige and don't want the film spoiled for you, and I really do implore you, don't let this film be spoiled for you. There are some great twists within it. So go ahead and click pause on this review right now. Go ahead and watch the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. 1890s London, Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman, and Alfred Borden, played by Christian Bale, work as shills for a magician under John Cutter's business, who's played by Michael Caine. Unfortunately, during a water trick, during one of the shows, Borden ties a bad knot, which drowns the stagehand, which just so happens to be Angier's wife. The two start their own careers, but Angier starts to become obsessed when Borden comes up with a new trick, the transported man. Angier hires a double to recreate the trick along with a new assistant, but after Angier sends this new, assist new assistant to infiltrate Borden's show and find the secret to the transported man, Borden gets his hands on Angier's double and tells him that he is the one who really has control thus allowing Borden to infiltrate Angier's so and tells the audience that he is just across the street, making a fool of Angier. 
Angier then goes and visits Tesla, who makes him a duplication machine, allowing him to take Borden's transported man to the next level. Angier then uses this trick to frame Borden for his murder. While in prison, Borden is visited by Angier, who is now under the name of Lord Cadlow, accompanied also by his daughter, Borden's daughter. Borden is willing to give up his secret in exchange for his daughter to be set free, but Angier says that he no longer needs it and walks away. Angier then returns to destroy the machine that was built to him by Tesla, only to be visited by Borden himself, oddly, who shoots him. He explains that Borden's secret is that he is a twin who is actually named Fallon, uh, who's actually been traveling around with uh, Borden this whole time, right under our noses. And this is how they did the transported man. Angier dies as Borden walks away from the burning theater to collect his daughter, or to, to collect his brother's daughter as the credits roll. That's a good, straightforward plot summary. And I, when I was watching this, I thought, I felt bad for myself when I had to do Memento. And then I yeah. thought, oh, I actually feel more bad for Alan that <laughs> you have to decipher this into a straight linear story. Because let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I would say this is no one's most extreme use of the non-linear storytelling method. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we noted that in Batman Begins was kind of where uh, he put it into, I guess, more of a uh, Hollywood style where he was kind of jumping back and forth, but it wasn't anything that I, I don't think either of us would consider to be out of the normal. Um, this one, however, it jumps around all over the place. Now, luckily I've seen this movie probably like five times uh, in my lifetime since I watched it back when my uncle showed it to us. So I remembered already a lot from it and Wikipedia's sub plot summary does have it laid out uh, in chronological order. So that, that helped out a lot too. Yeah, I've seen it enough times as well to know and understand the plot. Yeah. But regardless, you have to be paying razor, you have to have razor focused attention, razor oh, yeah. sharp attention on this movie. And that's just that's just the thing about all Nolan movies is you need to pay attention because he is always going to tell you some epic story that involves a lot of like a handful of intimate characters yep. that are likely going to betray each other in a myriad of ways. Yep. <laughs> and so you really got to be paying attention. So I put subtitles on for this viewing. Yep. I almost always put subtitles on, but yeah, I had to really pay attention just to, so I could keep myself on track as to what exactly is happening currently. And I think that's one of the things that, if it isn't evident now, um, I feel it's been evident since even following that no one is a not only a good storyteller, but is also a very good filmmaker because he's he I think he very, very well is able to adapt the screenplay that he writes or him and his brother write into something that is pretty much just made for film and only for film. Because editing in this movie, like just like his other movies, would not survive if it wasn't edited like this. The story would not be as well told if it wasn't edited as well as it is here and in his previous movies. Exactly. You can tell Nolan has a vision for how he wants to unfold the story to the audience. Right. Because I, I was trying to imagine this film in chronological order, just how I watched someone edit Memento into chronological order, and a lot of things lose their impact oh, watching yeah, it that imagine. way. I would imagine. And I, and I would imagine the same way with the prestige here is that a lot of things wouldn't work um, if they're told to you first because 
I love that he lays this movie out within the three act structure we're told in the beginning. Yeah. We've got the pledge, the turn and the prestige. And it's all, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty unbelievable how it's takes place within the present, but then Borden reads, um, Angier's journal. And then Angier is reading, Borden's journal in the past, which allows us to go even deeper into the past. Right. So in some ways, it's a flashback within a flashback. And then sometimes within a flashback, it's it's a it's mind boggling when I put it that way. But because Nolan purposefully wrote it, him and his brother purposely wrote it and like storyboard it and laid it out in the sequence, it makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the highlights of Nolan's career. Uh, one of the things I've noted about Nolan's career and his way that he tells stories, even though when you explain them to somebody, they seem like they're just so they're so confusing, <laughs> you know, but especially with Memento, where the story is literally told backwards. Uh, but I think because, again, like we we're just talking about, Nolan is such a good storyteller and these movies are edited so well that that isn't exactly hard to follow necessarily as they would seem to be. And it also makes sense because while watching this movie, I would say for the first time, it's not really about who can be the better magician. It's yeah. about this uh, really dark, hateful rivalry. And this, this is an epic character drama. That's how I would describe it. Yes. This is probably no one's most character centric story he's made so far. Absolutely. And that's why I said this film would, I would, I think it would look much different and I, it wouldn't be edited this way if it was put out in the sixties, unless uh, I think probably foreign filmmakers in the sixties had some of these visions of putting films together out of order and uh, kind of making the audience think a bit more in that way. But I'm speaking specifically narratively and character uh, dramatization. This is a very uh, epic character story, how we watch over the years and then especially around the turn of the century. And then we even get to see the evolution of how technology uh, intervenes within their lives and how they wreak destruction on each other, but then also how it really messes with all of the people's lives around them. Right. And I would even bring up that I, I like that our two main characters here, Borden and Angier, there isn't exactly a right character in the story. The two the two main leads, uh, I would say, while they have good and bad qualities about them, neither one of them, I would say, either lands on either the good or the bad side. It kind of feels like Borden is made out to be the bad guy for a good chunk of the movie. But then as... Uh, then as Angier's character starts to degrade more and more, it sounds like more like he's becoming the bad guy of the story. And then we get to the ending twist and it's like, well, okay, now who's really the bad guy? And I think I kind of like that a lot more and helps ground these characters as well as we don't really have a quote unquote antagonist of the story. It's kind of just these two characters I guess, uh, jealousy of the other ones is the thing that pushes the story along and causes the events to unfold. It's very organic how we see their emotions unfold toward each other, um, especially considering that it becomes deeply personal right yeah. off the bat when yeah. Angiers blames Borden for the death of his wife. Um, but then we come so far as the obsession and this, a lot of the themes in this movie center around obsession yeah. or greed 
and um, by coveting. And uh, it's very telling when Angier says to Scarlett Johansson's character that he said, I don't care about my wife. I care about the trick, which is so cold. And uh, Jackman's performance is great there, how he realizes how far he's fallen and yeah. what he said. And I think no one does a great job of depicting how uh, kind of this lust and greed can just completely overtake these people's lives and what they're willing to do to humiliate each other, to uh, mutilate each other, to yeah. break each other's bones. It gets really intense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that line of, I don't care about my wife. I care about the trick. I think perfectly encapsulates how far Angie's character goes in the story because it, yeah, it begins where he, it's, it is kind of Borden's fault that his wife drowns because the knot that he tied was not the correct one. Um, and so when the, sorry, when the movie starts and we get to that moment in the story where his wife dies, that kind of becomes a driving factor. But then once he gets to that line, you know, it's not necessarily about getting, I guess, revenge for his wife's death. He's just out for blood at this point. He's not even being, I guess, even remotely, I would say, reasonable about uh, trying to rectify what happened with his wife. At this point, he's just out for blood. He's He pretty much wants Borden dead almost at this point. And it's interesting because his, his jealousy seems to first center upon the loss of his wife and then how Borden gets a wife and a daughter and Andrews feels like that's robbed from him. Yeah. And then he shoes away. He could have had that again with uh, Miss Maycomb with, or it's Winscomb with Scarlett Johansson's character yeah. and then she goes to Borden and then, he, um, and that's where it gets confusing between who Fallon and Borden. Mm -hmm. And I, I love how it's purposely confusing, just how a magic trick is confusing and you'll never quite grasp how it's done. Exactly. You have ideas, but that's what their whole life is and their whole life eventually becomes a lie. And you see the toll that it just, reeks on humanity which leads to uh the suicide of borden's wife right um exactly. so it it does get very dark and um it's a i would also say it's a very well done cautionary tale yeah yeah it is it's very much a very good cautionary tale i would say probably around jealousy and then of course obsession are the two i would say most prominent themes of the story because these two characters by around the last 45 minutes are so engrossed and obsessed with overdoing the other person especially with Hugh Jackman's character that it basically literally takes over everything that they do that's that becomes solely what they've been focused on at that point in the story yeah and we do witness the dehumanization of yeah. each of their characters because um, and it really comes down to it when Angiers has shifted his identity completely to Lord Caldlow. Yep. Which we learn is that's who he really was all along. He really was this rich person that rejected his family's wealth and he didn't want to disappoint them. He tells this to his wife and uh, hence he kind of goes by a different name, but he's returned to that lifestyle he originally rejected. Right. And he's willing to let Borden die for a fake crime, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's when it's like uh that's when it becomes really jaw dropping. But then of course there is that brilliant comeuppance. And gosh, I gotta tell you, the first time I saw this movie, my jaw just dropped when um 
Angier's is shot at the end. Yeah. And then he takes off the hat and it's Borden and you're like, what? Because I I love that moment. I love that twist. Yeah. I'm, I don't remember exactly what my reaction was specifically when I saw the twist. I remember being like shocked that, mm-hmm. you know, it was Borden all along. But I think... I think I was partially confused as to how it actually came about um, when I was a little kid. Now, of course, I understand it. He has a twin right. brother. But at the time, I was, I was like, shocked, but also, like, confused. <laughs> as like, how did he do that? Does it make any sense? How was he out of the jail or whatever? So, And that's where this movie really does reward repeat viewings. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because there's so much to consider when you rewatch it in light of the information that you're given at the end. And that's one thing Nolan does a great job of is he will keep you guessing the whole way along. He will keep you entertained very much like the magic act, the prestige. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you watching closely? Yep. And then you come to find out that maybe if you had been watching closely this whole time, you would have figured it out because, and just like cutter, he says he uses a double, like yep. don't make it harder than it has to be. And surprise he had a twin this whole time exactly and it's kind of funny too because it's there's a lot of irony to this twist that again just even further engraves how good of a twist it is because angier is a magician you know he's actually both of them are magicians but they are both meant to stupefy the audience the audience their audience they're playing for right that's essentially their entire occupation for this entire movie right and so it's ironic that even though the answer was given to him early on from cutter who very early on in the movie when he is still stupefied when uh he comes in a shot and literally and dies to this twist where it's the guy where Borden is a twin. You've kind of was right the whole time. Uh, it's it's kind of ironic that uh, the man's occupation is the thing that ends up killing him. Oh, and the other thing that I find to be somewhat ironic as well is how closely tied in the idea of magic and illusion is brought into the future today because no one was saying how audience would go and see these magicians perform to be tricked and to enjoy seeing something unbelievable. And he was saying, that's basically how I view myself as a filmmaker is I'm here to bring something to the audience that they may not believe that is going to surprise them that they're going to enjoy. That's going to make them think. And he said, so in a way, um, He's like this magic trick. He's like, it's kind of the perfect embodiment of filmmaking. Yeah. And I definitely picked up some of that when I was watching it this time. Uh, I guess more of what I was picking up was uh, a broader sense of just artistry in general. Uh, people enjoy art to wonder what is it about, you know, that kind of a thing. So, yeah, it, I can definitely see those filmmaking roots also playing a very big role in how he was writing the story. You know, the magic being the thing that people want to go see because they want to be stupefied they want to be like how do they do that they want to be surprised and that's the thing that i think is so cool is because nobody like by and large audiences don't go to see magic shows anymore today yeah the cinema has largely supplanted that it's huge but we can still be surprised and like these audiences they would go back and see the same show again even though it's going to be the same trick just like we're going to we we're returning to this movie yeah. Even though we've seen it many times and we're still finding something different to pick out and talk about or appreciate. And 
I got to say, it's incredible that this is Nolan's fifth film, fourth like major like full length film though. Right, right. I mean, for Pete's sake, you'd think this guy was born with a camera in his crib. Exactly. Yeah. But he wasn't. And he, um, when this came out, he had uh, just turned 36 just a few months prior. So, I mean, he's just been steadily honing his craft and just doing it right. Instead of just pumping out, you know, one film a year and making it bad, it's just incredible what he's able to do. Oh, yeah. And I would even say that one of the criticisms that I think you and I mentioned last time with Batman Begins and kind of with Memento 2 uh, and with Insomnia in some ways, uh, the characters tend to be uh, exposition dumpers for pretty much the entire movie. Um, especially with Batman Begins. Um, but I didn't really feel that this time. I never really felt like these characters were as nearly as bad as they were in Batman Begins. I felt like all the dialogue that was coming from them felt a little bit more realistic than it was, you know, spilling exposition like we had before. Yeah, I think it's a lot better. And seeing how great the dialogue is and how the how great the writing is with these characters, mm-hmm. I just wish Nolan um, would have written Insomnia. Um, I think that was such a missed opportunity. Let Nolan direct and write his films. Don't yep. bring on, I mean, cause he co-wrote, uh, Batman Begins. So that wasn't all him, right. but I think Insomnia would have been a much stronger film and had much stronger characters, especially because the cast of characters is the size of it's very comparable to this as well. There are not many, uh, characters within this, but yeah, he does a great job of uh, really depicting the anguish and frustration, yep. the greed, a lot of the heartbreak and loss within these characters as well, without over explaining to you why they feel this way. Right. Now, I do have a, with those critics with those characters, I do have some criticisms. I, I, they most of mine actually do revolve around the characters. I think my biggest one is seeing it this last time. And leaving, having watched it now for probably the fifth or sixth time, I felt like I didn't really connect with these characters as much as I th- thought I was going to, or I guess as much as I was hoping for. And I, I don't really know why that is. Uh, I feel like maybe it's because we're kind of jumping between Borden and uh, Angier and some of the, I guess, character connected or relatableness is lost in some of that with how Nolan just tells his story. But that is a criticism I do want to bring up, at least on my end, is that I had a hard time connecting with these characters. I think I felt like I connected more with the characters' outcomes, like with the outcomes of their actions and the free fall, than specifically the characters themselves. Because I think there are traces of these characters within all of us of, envy wanting to be better than the other person or wanting things that they have and we're just not going to get it in ways i mean they're kind of like little kids yeah because when i was little my friend had a spider-man toy that i wanted and guess what my parents weren't going to buy it for me (laughs) so these are grown-ups who are far more dangerous and they're going to continually lose their morals as well in order to achieve their ends so I can understand what you're saying is that these characters are somewhat hard to relate to because we're also 
um, experiencing them um, kind of at very in close proximity at different times throughout their life. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, we're not, we don't really see the linear growth of these characters. We basically see pieces of them. And then in the end, we see how they got to be the way that they are. Yeah. And I, th- again, I think that while this is a very well told story, I think that the way that the story is told is the, is kind of the biggest factor in why I'm not connecting with these characters. Uh, and I'm talking about like more on a purely emotional level, not necessarily on a thematic level. I think that he does a very good job at making every line of dialogue, every character, every piece of the story is meant is has a reason to be in the story. There isn't anything that I would consider to be extraneous in in here, which is pretty typical for no one. There really isn't anything that is that everything that's in the movie is meant to be in there and has some place. And same with this one. I think, again, my problem is the way that he tells his story, I think, is getting in the way of me emotionally connecting with these characters. I would say that. And I would also say that there's nothing that these characters have to either lose or gain that would greatly affect me emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Because they really, um, Angiers wants to achieve to figure out how the transported man works. Mm -hmm. I don't really care, I guess, because... So what if he figures it out? Right. What's that going to do? I mean, and that's basically the final message of the movie is Angier's just like, I wanted to see the reaction on the audience's faces. I kind of got that high on being something incredible to them. And Borden is like, well, you know, you reap what you sow essentially. And I'm going to take my daughter and I'm going to leave this life behind because right. my family's dead and your family's dead. You're you've been dead like I don't know twelve times because of this machine. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in that sense, I would say the stakes that each of them are trying to attain. It's like it's just a bunch of one-upsmanship. And um, Jack Hugh Jackman's wife in this Paper Paraboo, she's dead so early on that we never got time to appreciate their relationship very well. Right. Right. And the same with, um, I would say for a first watching, it's mostly confusing why um, the wife, Borden's uh, first wife, when she says, you don't love me this day or you love me this day, Mm -hmm. that's mostly confusing probably until you realize it. But yeah, I would agree. There's not much of, not much with these characters to either lose or gain to really invest me in it. Right. And uh, that kind of comes as a bit more of a hit for me because this is a very character centric story, as we have noted. It's this story would not exist without these characters because it's, it's completely and totally wrapped around these two. So I think that that's a pretty big criticism on my end that, you know, I'm not connecting with them very emotionally. And there was about 45 minutes or so where I was like, eh, this story is not gripping me nearly as much as I remember it in the past. I agree. There is, I would say between that second act, there is some really dry stretches Mm -hmm. where I'm thinking this movie really didn't need to be two hours long. I still think it's paced well, but at the same time, it feels like some of these achievements, these characters, like some of their character goals need to be met either more quickly or they need to um, have some payoffs a little bit sooner and not just drag us along. I would say some of the more boring elements probably take place in Colorado, 
Um, that yep. just seems like some meandering exploration. I like that Nolan incorporates um, the real life war of Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. Yeah. And uh, kind of creates some historical fiction there. I really appreciated that as well. And that brought some realism, I would say, to this movie. Um, but yeah, you're right. There is some fairly dry stretches. And also, um, for instance, when uh, Miss Winscombe leaves Angiers and goes to Borden and she betrays him very quickly right off the bat, I didn't feel that emotional punch whatsoever. Yeah, that one was also kind of confusing as well. I don't think I ever actually picked up on that until this viewing. Um, yeah, that, it's not quite clear. Yeah, it, the, her motivation is nece isn't necessarily clear. She does fall in love with Borden, which we come to find out is, I guess, not really necessarily Borden per se. Right, uh, it's Fallon. But yeah, it's Fallon. So yeah, her motivation for leaving uh, Angier and falling in love with Borden isn't exactly spelled out very well to us. Uh, her character is rather small as well, so it's like a huge deal. But it her the her role does play a very big piece in the story because of what she does. So it's it's kind of like okay, um, I wish I had a little bit more explanation, I suppose, as to why she went ahead and did this. I also feel like there's not quite sufficient fallout with the suicide of his wife. I mean, we see that he's a man that loses everything and they've both lost everything. Yeah. And Winscombe clearly spells it out. You two deserve each other. Yep. Um, but, and I think that's a little bit frustrating is the beginning of the movie is Borden going to jail for the supposed murder of Angiers. And then uh, everything in between is a flashback until we pick back up, very similar to Memento, with where we started from yep. to see how the rest of it plays out. And I think we could have done with a little bit more breathing room there as well, because Cutter also realizes Angiers is alive and he finds that out to be horrible. But yeah. since this movie is going past two hours, they kind of need to get it wrapped up and they also need to wrap it up quickly because the audience is going to figure out something's up. Yep. Uh, very fast with Fallon and Borden. So they need to give us the literal prestige quickly or else right. Right. they'll lose the audience. Exactly. Now, I didn't have, certainly, I guess I didn't really have too much of an issue with Borden's wife's suicide. I thought that one was played out better than, uh, I guess, Scarlett Johansson's character. Um, that one I felt made a little bit more sense because we do have this line of, uh, you know, sometimes you say you love me, uh, and sometimes it's real, sometimes it's fake. Um, that line, <coughs> it is kind of cheesy, but in reality, I think it makes a lot of sense and helps really solidify her character because we find out that it's Fallon and Anne Borden, and they're two different characters, um, and they just swap back and forth between each other's lives. Uh, I think that now that she knows, you know, the truth, in all of this, which this movie is about, you know, I guess in some ways seeking the truth when you all get down to it. When she finds out, you know, what exactly is going on, it ultimately destroys her. So I guess I never really found too big of an issue with her suicide there at the end. I thought that one was at least more better explained to us than Scarlett Johansson's character and her motivation. I think what kind of makes it hard 
is she is very cryptically saying, I know what you are. I know what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. To the first time viewer, you're thinking it's because of his affair, but it's actually because she realizes that he, and this, I believe this is what the case is. She realizes that he's a twin. Yeah. And that she's basically been sharing uh, a husband in a Pretty way. Much. She's been having two husbands. And that right. is far too much for her to handle. And that does drive her to suicide. I do wish there would have been more emotional fallout, I guess, depicted within the family because the daughter is I okay, I love that scene of um the the husband and wife arguing and the daughter's just looking in at their room. Yeah. And then Fallon comes and picks her up. I think that's great. But she seems to do okay with whoever she's with. I mean, she goes to Lord Cardlow and she seems fine. And she never asks where her mom is after yeah. that, from what I could tell. So I don't know. I think I understand they gotta keep moving and focus on main characters, but they do show that little girl quite a bit, and she's supposed to be used as an emotional stake. She just doesn't is not given very much to do though herself. Yeah, yeah. No, she really isn't. The da- the daughter of Border is kind of de- definitely takes a backseat in the story. Um, and I guess I guess part of the reason also why I, I didn't have much issue with the wife with Borden's wife is because she does play a more prominent role in the story. She has mm-hmm. a lot of screen time compared to Scott oh, yeah. Johansson as well, and. To be fair, I mean, Angier's daughter didn't have hardly any screen time either. Um, so. And I guess what I'm saying is that the audience can't immediately identify with the with her real choice is because we don't know the truth of Borden yet. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which I would say in uh, upon your next viewing and viewings after that, you can understand her being more distraught and going yeah. to suicide a lot more. Yeah. yeah this is the definitely, first this is definitely a story that you have to watch, I think, more than once to really fully understand and everything that's happening. Oh yeah. It's the and you do, you get to see the fallout. People, people, a lady commits suicide, yeah. uh, another wife drowns. It's pretty sad. But oh yeah. Um, one thing you did say earlier that I wanted to note that I agreed on is you were saying how there was that stretch where the movie just wasn't grabbing you how it used to. Mm-hmm. And I found myself in the same boat as well. And I think this is the kind of movie that you have to be in the mood for to watch. Yeah. I can definitely um, be- agree with that. Because my sister and her friends the other night, um, they were looking through some movies and they picked out the prestige to watch it. And they'd all seen it before and they had a great time watching it. And this really has to be one of those movies, I would say, where it's like, you know what? I, I feel like watching that right now. Yeah. Because otherwise, just watching it because it's we're reviewing it. Yep. It, I think there is a lot less enjoyment out because you're approaching it more so from an analytical standpoint instead of that kind of like, oh, I kind of forgot the whole plot of this movie. I'm ready to be amazed again. But I thought the same thing as well, which was kind of disappointing for me because I remember just like, Oh, I love this movie. Yeah. And upon this watching, I can't say the same. Yeah. And I think that's, if I'm, yeah, I remember my thoughts on this where when I first watched it, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then the more than more that I watched it, the more I'm like, eh, I'm not as thrilled to watch it again after already seeing it a second time and a third time. And I've seen that, not to say I've seen, I've watched this movie like, you know, five times within a span of a month or whatever. 
but five times over probably 10 years. And so I've noticed even my own opinions on it as I get older, I'm kind of like, eh, I'm not as thrilled to, remo- to return to it as I thought I would be in the, in the future. And I will say, though, despite liking the some of the flashback structures, I think that sometimes um, it gets to be too big for its own britches, though. And which is another reason I think audiences had a hard time enjoying this movie. And that's reflected in that B cinema score mm-hmm. is because at, at, cer- at a certain point, I would, like I said, probably around that second act, I'm like, we are like three flashbacks deep right now. Yep. And I'm struggling to maintain consistency across the board with these character arcs because we're watching, we, we know the fallout, but we're watching it all unfold in the beginning. I think uh, it gets to be a little too much sometimes. Um, the other thing is, this is a weird choice because they wanted to duplicate the transported man. So within the same town in London, they found Hugh Jackman's twin, which is which his name is Root yep. in the movie. And I thought, really? Like they... Sh- I would have appreciated it more if they would have used like Hugh Jackman's stunt double or someone that looks very similar to him instead of him playing a double role. That is unbelievable. I mean, and I'm kind of shocked Nolan went there that he is like, we're just going, it's his exact twin. I guess I never really had too much of an issue with that because I always thought it was just a guy who looked close enough to him and was able to act like him. Um, that they ended up hiring. It's it's Jackman doing a double role, which bothers me because Nolan is trying to be realistic. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. I thought you were saying that they actually went out like in the story and found a twin of him. But you're saying that they did a uh, like a copy paste kind of a thing within the, within the movie and they actually filmed right. uh, Jackman twice. Exactly. Okay. I see it's, at a certain point, I almost felt like I was watching us because we've got two Christian Bales and two Hugh Jackmans. And yep. I'm like, Nolan, I can't believe you are going to use Jackman in a double role and expect us to believe he has some identical twin. And they're like, oh, yeah, he looks he looks like me and play it off so nonchalantly that it's like, oh, my gosh, you're the same person where we separated at birth that's that's too far-fetched for me to believe i I always found that annoying yeah i guess i never i guess that never really bothered me alan what is your rating and recommendation for the prestige the prestige has been as i mentioned earlier one of the known films that stuck with me since i've began so i guess since i discovered nolan from my uncle uh for whatever reason just how it has been um and I've always returned to it. I think, like I said, I've seen this like probably four or five, six times or so. But I, as I have also noted, it's a movie that I have found myself not really wanting to return to every time that I watch it. Um, and I think now I realize why that is, is because while this is a very well told story and one that deals with themes of obsession and greed and et cetera, et cetera, in a really smart and, ing- and engaging way, I think its characters is the thing that drags it down for me. As I mentioned, I'm having a hard time connecting with these characters. They, their motivations make sense. Their, the way that they go about telling the story makes them irreversible, or I guess the movie would not exist without these characters. It is solely based on these two characters, Borden and Angier. I think the problem is 
because of the way that the story is told, that's what Nolan gives the forefront and the limelight to is the telling of the story, not the characters of the story. And that, I think, honestly inhibits or uh, it holds back what this movie could be. I wish I was more emotionally involved with it. Um, but I can still very much appreciate its filmmaking aspects, which there are plenty to appreciate here. So I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. I'm still going to give it a solid recommend, but it is one that I feel, while it makes up, what, while it has a very well-told story, well-edited, well-written story, its characters are the thing that really drag it down for me, uh, mostly in that emotional connection. The Prestige is a complex period piece, which doesn't receive mainstream attention any longer. For that, I really appreciate Nolan continues to make a smart, engaging film with investing characters within their story. I highly enjoyed watching Jackman and Bale play off each other, and the destructive wake they laid on the supporting characters. Also, Michael Caine is a welcome return who fits into it nicely. The twists make the first few watchings an absolute treat. And returning to this film every few years provides a fun time since there's so much to rediscover. While the flashbacks within flashbacks can cause some head scratching as to when certain points occur in the timeline, if you really pay close attention, you'll be able to track with the movie. And please put on subtitles. It is surprising Nolan decided to make this while gearing up for his soon-to-be powerhouse sequel to Batman Begins, but I'm glad he did. So far, Memento is still Nolan's best film. A hard one to beat, but the prestige offers so much in the way of production quality, performances, and compelling writing that interlocks the three-act magic structure so well, you don't realize you're watching a magician's performance unfold before your eyes until the shocking conclusion. Nolan's fifth film further solidifies at the age of 36, he's truly mastered the art of filmmaking. The prestige receives eight stars out of ten with a strong recommend. Oh, I'm so excited for next week. I am so excited as well to review what many people consider to be one of the greatest films of all time, The Dark Knight. Yeah, which I at first I thought you were going to say one of the greatest superhero movies of all time, which it is that as well. Uh, <laughs> but having as high of a place as it does on the IMDb Top 250 and making as much money as it did in the box office back in 2008, yeah, uh, many consider it to be one of the greatest movies of all time. And for a while, it was my number one absolute favorite movie for I don't know how many years. Oh, it was at least five or six years since the day that I watched it. Um, so I am very excited because I don't think I've watched it for at least two year, two or three years at this point. Same here. I have not watched it. Well, it's been longer than that for me. I've, it's probably been... I don't know. I want to say it's probably been getting close to five years since really? I've returned to this movie. It's been a long time, a very long time. Gosh, I wish I had written down the last time I watched it, but it's been quite a while. Um, but I've seen it a few times, of course. So next week I can tell you about all my experiences seeing this movie because they weren't uh, con conventional, you might say. Okay. I know that I had seen this movie enough where I was able to quote the first like half an hour almost to a T. Yeah, I did find myself upon this watching quoting at least the Joker's lines. Yep. Yep. Because I got to say the writing for the Joker is iconic and I'm like, oh, I'm quoting it. I'm trying to do the voice. It's so much fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
But in the meantime, are you going to pick up the Prestige on Blu-ray? I might. Uh, I don't have it on Blu-ray. I might pick it up. I haven't decided quite yet if I would. I don't know. I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. You have to be in the right mood to watch this movie. And I guess I have to be in the right mood to buy this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the right price. Yeah. I would, don't think I'd pay more than $10 for it. Um, but I might pick it up. I'm, I'll consider it. I did get the very early Blu-ray when it came out. Um, I remember this was among the earliest Blu-rays I owned. And it's got that really ugly Disney Buena Vista type covers where half of it's obscured by saying ultimate in uh, high definition picture and sound. Yeah. And just large chunks of the back. Like you get to read a little bit of the plot, but it's mostly like 1080p HD audio. Yeah, that must be. This see, this came out in 2006, so that would have been right around the time that Blu-ray came out. Uh, so I guess it makes sense why they'd have that feature on there, because at this point, Sony's like really pushing for Blu-rays to be sold. So, so if audiences, what would you recommend them watch after they've seen the Prestige? What would you recommend the other movie or TV show for them to go watch? Oh, definitely The Illusionist. I think that's a very like you mentioned earlier. A very almost a perfect companion piece to this i do also highly recommend you watch the illusionist with edward norton and rufus sewell mm-hmm. uh and jessica beale actually yeah i was trying to see if i could remember that <laughs> and and it's one of those things where throughout the years um just like with my family the mood has uh just hit us to watch the prestige Mm -hmm. but it's always never like let's just watch the prestige i'm really in the mood to watch that movie again it's always like let's watch the prestige and then we'll let's watch the illusionist a couple days later yeah yeah so they are good companion pieces um there is a newer movie that came out Uh, it didn't really come to it kind of came to theaters but it's definitely a red box right now i'm pretty excited to see it actually um it's called the current war director's cut well alan thanks for joining me sure thing all right listeners we will see you next week with the dark knight Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners.
The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.